Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. Americans drove a lot less in 2020. The pandemic shelter-in-place orders and collapse of tourism for most of the year meant that we had fewer cars on the road for fewer miles. But at the same time, pedestrians killed by cars rose to their highest level since 1990. And combined with the decline in vehicle miles traveled, last year saw a huge jump in the rate at which pedestrians died on our roads. We're now looking at a greater than 50% increase since 2010 in the number of pedestrian fatalities. We'll explore the variation across the country, the root causes, and the serious equity issues that the data reveals. That's all next on Forum, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The number of pedestrians killed by drivers has shot up to over 6,500 per year a major increase over the lows of a decade ago. There are systemic reasons for why pedestrian deaths are going up, and like so many other things, Native American, Black, and Hispanic people are disproportionately affected by these tragedies, too. We'll get to the bigger issues with our panel of experts, and we also wanted to take a moment to recognize that each of the people killed by a motorist had a family and friends, a story, and life cut short. And so we begin our discussion with Gina LeBlanc, whose then 18-year-old son, Kyle, was killed in San Jose back in 2016. Thank you so much, Gina, for coming on to share your story with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So can you can you tell us what happened back then? Um, well, my son was 18. Um, he's senior in high school, and um, he was going to be the DJ at the Valentine's Dance in a few days. He was five months from graduating from high school, um, planning his senior prom, getting ready for college and everything. Um, and it was January, he just turned, just turned 18. And um, unbeknownst to me and my husband, he snuck out of the house to meet mm. a girl, which is <laughs> mm. not uncommon for teenage boys. And he was 18, he was an adult. Um, 
he was very comfortable taking public transit. In fact, when he was 16, he's like, mom, I don't want to learn how to drive because mm. it really bothers me how cars don't follow the rules. He was very rule driven. Um, he was actually um, on the autism spectrum, high functioning autism, and um, just a, a really brilliant kid. Um, but yeah, he, he didn't like how people didn't put on their blinkers. They were speeding. So he's like, I'm not going to learn to drive. So he was taking hmm. public transit. And that night he took public transit in San Jose. And um, he was, I, I was woken up in the middle of the night at 1.30 in the morning by the police hmm. um, telling me to check Kyle's room. Or they said, does Kyle LeBlanc live here? And I, I said, yes, he's asleep. And they said, go look. And I, with total panic in my heart if oh. any mother is listening i ran down the hallway and threw open his door and he wasn't there and um i went back and the police said you need to get to the hospital right away to valley medical center in san jose um, where i happened to be a nurse for the previous 22 years oh. um so we got to the hospital and we only had minutes with him he had been hit by a tow truck um, trying to access the Kirtner Avenue light rail station. Um, and we just had minutes with him and he died in my arms in the hospital, just downstairs from the unit where I had worked at for 22 years. Gosh, um, Gene, I'm so sorry. Uh, what, how did your lives all change after that? Well, the shock is unbelievable. Um, but Kyle is survived by a younger brother who was only 14 at the time. And I needed to be strong for him. He needed a mom. His brother had disappeared overnight and I couldn't disappear. I couldn't well, crawl in a cave. So I had to be a mom and I got up every day and I did what I needed to do for him. And he needed to know that I would be okay and he would be okay and our family would be okay. But inside I was absolutely dying and I would drop him off for school and just weep for hours, crawl into bed and then go pick him up from school and try to be brave again. Um, you know, everything changes. It's that whole before and after thing. Like before the crash, I was one person after completely different. I could not go back to the hospital. Um, it was a career I loved. I loved taking care of premature babies. It's a fabulous neonatal intensive care unit mm. there. I couldn't do it. Um, it's life and death, and I and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. So yeah, everything changes really. At that point, did you decide that you were gonna go on a mission to make streets safer? Was did did you have like that moment where you said to yourself like, okay, this has happened to my family. I don't want it to happen to anybody else. Yes, I don't know if it was a moment, but. Um, as I said before, Kyle had autism and I really, he trained me as an advocate, really. <laughs> I had to advocate for him for his whole life in the school system and um, to help him navigate his way. And then that made me an, an advocate in the, in the NICU for my premature babies who couldn't mm -hmm. speak for themselves. So I was already advocating. And then this happened. And when I, I think it was just out of just anger or total shock and disbelief that a really dangerous area exists in our city that still hasn't been fixed by the way five years nine months later um and people are dying there and no one is 
doing anything about it because there's no political will and there's no funding and people die and they like for Kyle, they just, you know, swept up the glass and the blood and whatever and, and fixed the lights on the overpass, which were out. Mm. And, um, and everyone went about their merry way and life went on for everybody else except for me. Uh, yeah. I just was compelled, yes, to speak up so that this didn't happen to another family, another person, another mother. So did you look at sort of where to try to intervene in this problem? Like, do you go, you know, this happened in San Jose. It also happened in a particular neighborhood in San Jose. Did you go there? Do you try and go to the state level, to the national level? Like, where did you think you might have leverage to try and, like, fix some of these things? I didn't know if anything I would do would work, <laughs> but I, um, by a chance meeting, met one of the founding members of Families for Safe Streets in New York City. I met her at a bereaved mother's retreat and she opened my eyes to what the possibilities are for advocacy. And I definitely started with my city. And the first meeting I showed up with, uh, showed up to was um, the Department of Transportation meeting uh, and with a poster of Kyle's face and told his story to put a human face on a data point. And that's kind of where I started. Um, but since then, I've done city, I've advocated in the state, and now nationwide, we're meeting with uh, members of Congress, Families for Safe Streets. I mean, if you could just say, all right, we're making these changes. Like we've got, we've got the political will. We've, we just, all we need to do is just make this stuff happen on the ground. Like what's your sort of like top three things that you would go about changing? Oh boy. Street designs that, um, they need to prioritize safety. They need to be a safe systems approach like vision zero, um, where you're, it's, it's the design. I know you're going to be talking to some future ex experts, but for example, where Kyle was hit, um, there is a best practices to follow and, the, and federal um, research has been done and they've posted, you know, what best practices are to create a safe first and last mile for access to public transit. There needs to be better lighting, needs to be protected bike lanes and protected area for pedestrians to walk. Um, there needs to be signage. Um, so road design, in my view, is number one. Um, and then we need to lower the speeds on our streets. Speed is what kills. Um, with every mile per hour faster a car is going, it, it increases the chance that someone's mm -hmm. going to be killed. And I don't know if I came up with a third one, but... Those well, are two big the, ones. Yeah. yeah. I guess just that um, I just want people to realize that these deaths are not inevitable. They are preventable. Kyle died in a preventable crash. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dina LeBlanc, bereaved mother, member of San Francisco Bay Area Families for Safe Streets and a retired Santa Clara County nurse. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I also want to add into our conversation here about pedestrian safety, Offer Graham Beck, who's co-director at UC Berkeley Safe Transportation, Transportation Research and Education Center, which is a research center affiliated with the School of Public Health and the Institute of Transportation Studies. Welcome, Offer. Hi, thank you for having me. 
We also have Angie Schmidt. Uh, she's a journalist and author of Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. And she's also the founder of 3MPH, uh, planning and consulting focused on pedestrian safety. Welcome, Angie. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Offer, before we uh, get to the break, I, Gina mentioned Vision Zero. For listeners who you know haven't been involved in this sphere, can you give us kind of like the just the capsule version of what Vision Zero is? Uh, absolutely. And, and just before I start, I just want to say that uh, um, as someone who does traffic safety research every day, it's hearing stories or tragic stories like uh, Gina and Kyle's that really helps uh, solidify or highlight the fact that in the realm of transportation failures, the one where someone doesn't get to the destination because they're injured or dead is the, uh, the highest priority that mm-hmm. we need to focus on. Um, and to your question about uh, uh, Vision Zero and the safe system approach, which Gina also mentioned, uh, so the transportation safety field is going through a, a pretty big transition where we are uh, challenging the more traditional perspective of, of, of traffic safety uh, by recognizing that uh, uh, we're not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but we are uh, refining and using slightly different lens to look at, uh, at traffic safety. Uh, for example, if uh, in, more, in traditional safety, the perspective is to prevent crashes in a safe system approach or vision zero, we're focused much more on preventing deaths and serious injuries. And it turns out that focusing on the pertinent on these type of crashes um, actually gives us more opportunity to, uh, to save lives. We're talking about pedestrian traffic safety with Offer Grembeck, co-director, UC Berkeley Safe Transportation Research and Education Center, and Angie Smith, Schmidt, a journalist and author of Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. We want to hear from you, too. We know that many people feel strongly about these issues. What safety problems do you notice when out walking? Have you had a close call as a pedestrian? And in your area, have you noticed any particularly dangerous traffic situations for pedestrians? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, you can always get in touch on Twitter and Facebook with your questions and comments. We're at KQED Forum, or the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum Ahead. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about traffic safety with Offer Grembeck, co-director at Berkeley Safe Transportation Research and Education Center, and Angie Schmidt, a journalist and author of Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. Angie, I wanted to talk to you about the rise in pedestrian deaths, people killed by cars, over the last decade. What do we know about What's different now relative to 2009 or 2010 when we saw really the the low for uh, this kind of fatality? Um, yeah, well, one of the biggest um, issues seems to be there's been a big shift in the kind of vehicles Americans drive. So um, since about 2009, um, when we were coming out of the last recession, there's been a big shift from, at that time, almost three in four vehicles sold to consumers were sedans. And now we see um, almost the reverse, where about three quarters of new cars are um, SUVs or pickups. And um, we've also seen, uh, in addition to the shift to SUVs, we've also seen pickup trucks become really enormous. So there's a lot of data that shows that that is really connected to this rise. Those vehicles are more dangerous. Can you tell us about that? Is it just that like they're bigger and heavier or is it something actually about the physics of like the front of the car? or the truck in this case. Yeah, it's both. They are, a lot of times they are bigger and heavier. Um, So they can be as much as, uh, it's not unusual, they'll be a thousand pounds heavier. But they're also, a lot of times they have a higher front end, especially um, some pickup trucks now have uh, front ends that are, you know, it's kind of interesting to just kind of take your picture in front of them. I did it recently. I'm about five, six, and my head barely cleared sort of the hood of one of these new pickup trucks. So there's this just this consumer trend in the auto industry with very, they call it aggressive front ends that can be often very flat. And they even have sort of a menacing looking style on the front end. And that turns out that actual menacing style turns out to actually be more dangerous as well to pedestrians. Yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty it's pretty messed up. Um yeah. people um actually there's some a little bit of data that's a little bit dated that shows that the auto industry sort of understood that people um on some weird reptilian level like the idea of being able to run people over if oh. they're sort of um it, if they're threatened in some way. Um, so they like the idea of having an intimidating looking car. And it, it turns out that really, you know, and, and these are almost all accidental cases, but still that um, extra aggressivity really can play out in tragic ways. You know, the other thing that people say, and we have uh, one listener tweets, you know, I see distraction as a problem on both sides, drivers and pedestrians looking down at phones, not making eye contact before going through intersections, also navigation apps that send unfamiliar drivers through residential neighborhoods to avoid traffic. And I guess the question is, to what extent do we think phones are also, you know, a big part of the problem here, especially given that we know that, you know, 2010 is really when the rise of smartphones went exponential? Yeah, we, it's a little bit harder to say because we don't have very good data. There's usually not a very thorough crash investigation 
um, that follows up and really determines, you know, the extent of distraction. Um, but we know that it is very dangerous to drive when you're distracted and that most people who have smartphones, a lot of good research shows use them almost every time they drive, use them pretty frequently while they're driving. So there were, we're definitely way too tolerant of that, especially distracted driving. Yeah. Um, Offer Grambeck from uh, Berkeley Safe Transportation Research and Education Center. Wanted to ask you about a comment from a listener, Wendy, who writes, you know, the biggest group of victims is not a race or ethnicity. It's an age. Older persons are the biggest group of victims of street violence by car. Please talk about that and about why net zero will not work without enforcement, which has gone down. And I was hoping we could use this question to kind of bounce into, like, what do we know about who's being killed uh, in these crashes? Absolutely. And I'm going to uh, tie it in also to what was mentioned about Vision Zero in the safe system approach, because uh, uh, as I said, there are several principles that we're using as our guiding principles to help us uh, focus our lens. But the two that keep on coming back and turn out to be uh, the most meaningful ones are, uh, first of all, the, um, the amount of kinetic energy that a uh, road user would be exposed to given a crash. Uh, so if we're talking about pedestrians, if we're talking about uh, big pickups, uh, the discrepancy between the amount of kinetic energy that's carried by these larger vehicles and unprotected vulnerable road users, pedestrians and bicycles is just growing. And as a result of that, the relative vulnerability um, of these road users is just becoming uh, bigger and bigger. If we're talking about uh, um, um, older road users, uh, uh, their, their body structure is not as, uh, as robust as younger road users, and that's why the outcome, given a crash, can be more uh, catastrophic. So hmm. first of all, it's, uh, uh, the surviving kinetic energy is something that we want to focus on um, a lot. Uh, the second part is um, that is an important part when we are thinking about traffic safety, and it also ties in a bit to the question about, sorry, I'm kind of taking it back a little bit to the question about uh, the cell phones, is that uh, we actually want to build a system that uh, where we recognize that users do mistakes, that users will make mistakes, uh, not intentionally, not because we're bad, but, uh, but because we're humans. And sometimes we're going to be late, sometimes we're going to be emotional, sometimes uh, um, um, uh, we're thinking about things. And uh, despite all of the efforts to encourage us to be as, as safe and as responsible as possible, at some point, something is going to, uh, to go wrong. So if we're talking about distracted driving, that's definitely something that's, uh, that should be discouraged. Uh, but we also want to design a system, uh, going back to Gina's comment about the design, design a system that even if something does go wrong unintentionally, it's not going to cost. So uh, what's a specific design decision that that sort of viewpoint or or that way of thinking about uh, human beings, how does that actually lead to different design decisions? So it's 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 a lot about redundancy. So uh, um, uh, uh, mistakes will happen and you want to have enough safety buffers in the system um, uh, to to account for that. Uh, Kind of a classic example is a spare tire on, on a vehicle. Uh, um, we know that something may go wrong, so we have there we have there a buffer. Uh, the same thing with uh, um, uh, shoulders of uh, of highways, so that's space to accommodate when something does go wrong. There are um, uh, 
um, intersection designs when there's a, lo a longer um, all red period. So there's all these situations that um, in more traditional design, if everyone behaves as they're supposed to, no one will get injured. But the reality is that uh, people will move a little bit from that uh, expected behavior. Mm. And we want the system to give us these extra uh, safety buffers. I want to add in Collar Isaac from Palo Alto. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, I really enjoy your show. I listen to it every day. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. So, so my question, and I also uh, was saying that I was really moved by your caller. Uh, I wanted to say that she she is an angel for for what she was doing, even in the NICU, and to to mm. to devote her life to the story. It, it drew my attention to this story. Um, and my my question to you is: I'm, I live in Palo Alto, and one of the things that's very common in Palo Alto are electric vehicles. One of the things that I notice is that um, electric vehicles they are very quiet uh, in their approach. And a lot of times I've seen, uh, you know, this is a very uh, bicycle-driven community, and I've seen a lot of near accidents. And it seems that the coupled with distracted driving, if you don't even hear the car coming, I've seen so many near uh, yeah. crashes. So I was wondering if that is something that uh, is considered. No, same same here. No, um, thank you for that, Isaac. Um, Angie Schmidt, maybe we can use Isaac's question to talk about kind of the a couple different things. I mean, one is this, you know, the quietness of electric vehicles, which I agree scares me, uh, though I like them. Uh, the the other piece of it is that, you know, cars have added so much technology that's supposed to detect, uh, you know, perspective collisions or, or other things. What do we know about how the in-car technology is affecting the rate of pedestrian uh, deaths? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, so far, we, we're not seeing a noticeable improvement, right? Um, but the thing is, we, we have a lot of safety technology that's available right now. And that a lot of times it comes standard in the more expensive new cars. And I'm talking about automatic emergency braking. There's, um, there's a technology called pedestrian detection, automatic pedestrian detection. So, but um, the federal government has not required these technologies. And um, there's some... Uh, studies that show they could save um, as many as thousands of lives a year. Some people say that if we just required all the existing available safety technology in cars, we could save as many as 10,000 lives a year. So there's really sort of tremendous opportunity there. And there just hasn't been very much awareness of it. There's not very much political um, action on behalf of it. So even something like automatic emergency braking, which is becoming standard in especially luxury cars, the federal government has made no move to require it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Kyle uh, in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for uh, giving us a call. Hey, so I've been a bike messenger here in San Francisco for about seven years, and I'd say the problem is pretty much everybody is distracted. Everybody's always looking down at their phone. I moved here from Seattle, and I would just want to say that, you know, everybody there, you know, everybody looks before they cross the street. That doesn't happen too much here. Uh, mm. My first day riding here in San Francisco, I got hit by a pedestrian who just walked out in the middle of the street between two cars, you know, like it was in the middle of a three, three lane road and bam, there's a pedestrian and I fell and, you know, got a concussion. 
And I just think that, you know, everybody just needs to be a little bit more aware, you know, myself and myself included. Yeah, thank you for that, Kyle. I, you know, I want to ask you, Offer Grimbeck, I mean, this seems like a, a perfect example of, you know, we see that people aren't always doing the right thing. And so what is the answer for, you know, distracted people? Is it to change the technology in the car? Like if we if we just assume that people aren't going to get better, then what's our answer here? Um, I don't have the answer. Um, but uh, uh, part of the answer is that um, we want to uh, we want to keep on communicating that these are undesirable behaviors uh, and parallel try to identify all of the critical design attributes that would help uh, keep all road users safe. If we're talking about pedestrians, there are some principles that we want to uh, look at every single intersection, every single location and, uh, and kind of check the boxes. And these uh, it includes uh, uh, making pedestrians visible to traffic, making traffic visible to pedestrian. Uh, um, as I said, of course, encouraging uh, a, a desirable behavior, um, minimizing the crossing distance, and then of course, uh, slowing vehicular traffic. In this case, it was a, uh, it sounds like it was also with a, with a bicyclist, which is another complication, of course, in, in dense urban locations. But uh, uh, unfortunately, we have not yet uh, um, come up with a solution that uh, would get people to behave the way uh, we would want them to. So that's why we are challenged, uh, but very passionate on finding more design solutions that would uh, accommodate, and not accommodate these mistakes, but account for these mistakes. And we think about uh, vehicle technology, the promise is there. As Angie said, we're not necessarily seeing the benefits quite yet, mm -hmm. but uh, there is more and more technology incorporated into, for now, higher end vehicles. And uh, we hope that it would also uh, be included in uh, as standard in all vehicles. Angie, um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, it, it, the data shows that people get killed in these accidents, you know, kind of dusk and nighttime which maybe seems to argue against distracted driving being like the primary driver. And so you think that would have a, an effect all throughout um, the day and, and night. Are there things we know specifically about what to do at night or at dusk to make things safer? I mean, I, I, the obvious one, of course, is adding more streetlights. Yeah, that's a big thing. I think it's been overlooked. We need to make sure we have good street light um, visibility, especially... Um, in locations like the earlier caller said, Gina, around um, transit stations and that sort of thing. We need to make sure there's equality in that kind of infrastructure too, that the neighborhoods like lower income neighborhoods that may need it the most aren't being overlooked. Um, and there, there also may be a need for, again, controlling speed a little bit more, especially at night um, when there's less congestion and vehicles can get going at a faster rate, that's even more dangerous. And oftentimes they're not seeing pedestrians until a little later. So they're mm -hmm. being struck at a higher speed. So it is really a tricky problem. In some countries they have, um, uh, some places have experimented with having lower speed limits at nighttime. And I think that's sort of a good idea. Um, this is the time of year when it starts getting dark early where we see um, the most pedestrian crashes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, 
I want to get to a few more comments here. People are um, lots of these coming in. Wallace tweets, uh, pedestrians also need to take responsibility. They walk out looking at their phones, wait to cross standing in the street, don't respect lights, bikes run, stop lights, signs, use pedestrian crosswalks, then the streets when convenient. I've almost hit two bikes running lights and a pedestrian uh, on the phone. And I was wondering... um, Angie, if you could talk a little bit about where, what do we know about where people get hit, like in the urban environment? Is it actually like in the, you know, central core where people are kind of thinking, you know, they imagine a person in their head walking out into a sidewalk? Or is it actually, you know, in other places out in like exurban or like big, you know, eight lane roads in a big suburb? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I just want, I want to just defend here, I think like our street system is very, very hostile to pedestrians. Oftentimes, um, crosswalks may be a third of a mile apart. So it would require as much as two thirds of a mile or, you know, a a third of a mile total of a detour. People are dealing with very hostile conditions. We just don't have complete infrastructure for pedestrians. They've been like an afterthought in all of our design. And to your question about um, the locations, this this is what really... um, This is something I highlight a lot in my book. And there are key streets in almost every metro area where there's a wildly disproportionate share of these kind of crashes. So like, for example, I cite um, the street in Philadelphia in my book where almost a quarter of all the traffic fatalities happen on a single street. So I know that it's similar there too, where a small percentage of streets makes up this really disproportionate amount of these kind of crashes. And what that tells us is it has something to do with street design. It's not just someone being an idiot. You know, there's mm-hmm. something, there's some bigger pattern going on. And often it is in lower income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color where we see that. And often those neighborhoods have been passed over for the kind of um, infrastructure treatments they need to keep them safe. Yeah. Which, I mean, is as simple as sidewalks in a lot of cases. Um, We're talking about traffic safety for pedestrians with Angie Schmidt, a journalist and author of Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America, as well as Offer Grembeck, who is co-director at UC Berkeley Safe Transportation Research and Education Center, which is a center affiliated with the School of Public Health and the Institute of Transportation Studies. We do want to hear from you. What safety problems do you notice when you're out walking you know, what do you think it will take to keep pedestrians safe? Call us now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum or forum at kqed.org if you email. Um, one comment from Julie. One problem with SUVs and pickups front ends is that they reduce drivers' visibility. This was not always an issue. Take a look at 20-year-old SUVs and pickups, same power but small front ends. We need to legislate visibility requirements in vehicles, and we need to sue auto manufacturers for their responsibility in pedestrian deaths involving the driver not seeing the pedestrian. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about traffic safety for pedestrians with Offer Grembeck, co-director at Berkeley Safe Transportation Research and Education Center, and Angie Schmidt, author and journalist who wrote the book Right of Way. I want to bring in Peter from San Francisco into the discussion. Peter, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. Uh, first of all, I don't recall hearing about Vision Zero, but as I recall reading, Vision Zero in San Francisco was a complete and total flop. And I don't know that there's been an analysis that I have seen or that perhaps you'd want to discuss. I'm very concerned about what uh, the author uh, has talked about with, his, with regard to planning. Uh, for example, the Muni's uh, mania for speed, as an example on Van Ness Avenue, they removed a bunch of stops and they're changing the whole design of the street to make for faster buses. Well, faster means more uh, more serious uh, results from so-called collisions with pedestrians. And at the same time, it throws people into having to walk further, crossing more streets along more busy streets and so on. Uh, the way that they're planning Van Ness, as an example, they have fast traffic moving inches from pedestrians with no parked car or any other kind of barrier uh, against the sidewalk. So there's a whole range of ways that it seems as though planning has forgotten or even is working counter to pedestrian mm. safety. Yeah, thank you for that call, Peter. And uh, Offer Grambeck, could you talk about what happened uh, with Vision Zero in San Francisco, please? And, and hopefully we can address some of the issues that uh, Peter brought up. Absolutely. Um and and uh, uh, the Vision Zero efforts or safe system efforts, it's uh, these are very similar uh, approaches that, as I said, prioritize design. And uh, the challenge with uh, demonstrating the impact of that is that uh, it takes time uh, to change street design. Um, uh, many of the streets have been designed prior with a slightly different plans. And it literally is going uh, location by location uh, to assess the situation so that the appropriate modifications can be entered or can be uh, can be done there. In terms but, you know, of Hopper, um, just thinking about something Angie said earlier, I mean, if we know that a decent chunk or a large percentage of the fatalities and near misses and accidents happen in a relatively small number of places. And we then we don't need to change that many streets. Right. Um, yes and no. So we definitely want to make sure that we are uh, going to the places where most of the crashes uh, happen. But we also want to learn from these locations and proactively um, go to locations where a crash hasn't happened yet, uh, but is a so-called accident waiting waiting to happen, mm. uh, so that we can make the change there. So we want to use we want to be able to. Uh, uh, clear up all of our system using the analogy of fires. If there's a fire, we want to put it out, but we also learn want to learn from that where to prevent uh, the next fire. So it is indeed a combination. Uh, with respect to these high uh, injury corridors that keep on uh, showing in more and more cities, 
um, uh, definitely there is, there is room for concerted efforts and to a large extent, reducing speed is a very promising countermeasures, a countermeasure to do that. You know, Afra, the other thing that Peter's comment made me think about was just how these uh, these deaths, these people killed by cars, are incorporated into these other planning processes. Like, how, how is that normally done so that that planners will, I, I guess, balance these deaths against other uh, priorities that they have? Um, traditionally, a lot of that has been done using more uh, engineering principles of benefit cost. Uh, so you would have some information about the number of crashes that happen at the location and uh, what would be the cost of a specific countermeasure. And then you're able to assess whether or not it meets a certain benefit cost uh, criteria. Uh, what we want to try to do today is to actually reverse it uh, to give the, to empower the policymaker mm-hmm to specify what is the desired level of safety and then find the most cost-effective way to do that. Uh, So we're trying to kind of change the lens to make sure we build safe streets. Yeah. Uh, Jessica, a listener, tweets, you know, I've had multiple close calls throughout the Bay Area, primarily in intersections where cars are allowed to turn into the crosswalk while pedestrians are crossing. As a visually impaired pedestrian, it's very scary as I cannot always make eye contact with the drivers while crossing. And Andrew, I wanted to um, use Jessica's comment to get at this intersection between sort of disability and uh, pedestrian uh, safety. Um, what do we know about how to make streets safe for people who might be vulnerable because of a, of a disability? Well, all the problems that we have for people who aren't disabled are, in a lot of cases, people who are trying to navigate, you know, with a visual impairment or a wheelchair, missing curb ramps can put people like that in danger. Again, all the pieces aren't in place for them to be safe. And the, the way the caller is talking about, I mean, as someone who doesn't have a visual impairment, I find cars turning across the crosswalk when you have a right of way scary. And a lot of times they aren't yielding, right? So I can't imagine what it's like to deal with um, if you have a visual impairment. And, um, you know, we, that's something we should, I think we should think more about in in dense cities like San Francisco, whether right turn on red is a good thing. We know that that has um, safety drawbacks. And in a congested metro area like that, it might not offer much time savings either. So I, I think because, because vehicles have gotten so much bigger, And because um, people are a little more vulnerable now because the American population is aging, we need to be bolder with sort of our responses in order to keep people safe. Um, That's sort of the best I can offer. Um, My expertise really isn't on disabilities, but uh, it is a very serious problem. Let's bring in Robert from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, Robert. Hello. Hey, can you hear us? You're on the air. I can hear you. Um, I'm a emergency physician, 65 years old, worked at a trauma center in Oakland for over 30 years. And this time of year, I believe, is uh, particularly dangerous for pedestrians. Uh, the psychological effect of daylight savings time where when the time shifts, it suddenly gets dark an hour earlier. And people's psychological response to it 
is that they drive faster to get home because they they feel on the inside with their internal clock like they're late. And in fact, it's, you know, 530 in the afternoon, but it's getting dark right during the middle of peak commute times. People in the Bay Area like to wear dark clothing. People in the Bay Area are very distracted by their phones. And the combination and also the increasing prevalence of electric vehicles that are hard to hear. So the upshot of all of that is this time of year is it's not just the days getting shorter. It's the sudden shift of daylight savings also. And as an emergency physician, I hate taking care of these kind of injuries because they're so injurious to the to the uh, pedestrians. Yeah. Um, and to the comment about the aggressive height of vehicles now with SUVs and four-wheel drive, it's the it's when you get hit, it's the differential acceleration of the part of your body that gets hit versus the part of your body that doesn't get hit that is of particular danger. And when you think about these vehicles that now are going to hit you at the top of your shoulder, mm-hmm. but not hit your head or neck, it's going to break your neck. Right. Oh, man. Thank you, Robert, for for that on the ground view. Really appreciate that, too. And I, I think, you know, I want to get to a few uh, listener comments as well, just about sort of what it's like to to try and change some of these things. Um, One listener tweets, when we finally got a stop sign at a notoriously dangerous intersection, there was literally a neighborhood party, a party to celebrate five years of being ignored by SFMTA. You know, another listener tweets, here in West Oakland, people walk out onto the San Pablo Avenue, which is basically a highway, and cross randomly all the time. Pedestrians wear dark clothes, drivers speed and don't stop at stop signs. It's a wonder more people aren't killed. Ernst writes, I live by 13th Street, and it's incredibly deadly. Everyone ignores no turn signs. Everyone speeds. Everyone texts while driving. It's like a freeway right next to my house. There have been a number of deaths of bikers and pedestrians in the area over the last few years. It's just a nightmare of a street. And offer, you know, just kind of combining a bunch of these comments, you know, it seems like people in their neighborhoods, I mean, I can think about particular intersections here, like one on on Ashby, you know which ones are dangerous if you live in the area. And it feels like, do do planners really have a way or a formalized way of tapping that neighborhood knowledge? And, and do they even want it? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes, uh, in terms of really want it. And the answer is not quite there in terms of having the option to tap into this knowledge. It's been um, considered for a while a huge asset, Uh, recognizing the communities actually know what type of facilities are the problematic ones. And as researchers and as some practitioners, it's it's really a challenge for us to tap into that information. There have been efforts at our center. uh, We started a website called uh, Street Story, where community members can contribute information about uh, what they observe. And there are many other efforts nationwide Uh, But we're still not quite at the point that we're able to process that data, um, verify its uh, um, accuracy, and fuse that with our more traditional uh, um, 
uh, crash reporting data. Hmm. But so this is this is a huge uh, opportunity, and we're constantly trying to figure out ways of how to tap into the community's knowledge, uh, because that would again allow us to do things proactively because today you need for someone to be injured or dead to know that there's a problem from an engineering perspective. Uh, but then people of the neighborhood uh, will be able to say, oh, we've known this was a problem for months. Yeah. So uh, uh, we haven't quite found ways to incorporate that into our existing models. Ellen from Santa Rosa, welcome to the show. Ooh. Hi, Ellen. Hello? Hi, Ellen. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to um, mention uh, an increasing problem in downtown Santa Rosa, where I live, is uh, what sounds like drag racing. There's this whole sort of subculture, sort of it sounds like, uh, you know, toxic masculinity on crack out there. (laughs) And just like really loud, really, really fast uh, racing around. um, Mm -hmm. And... It seems to get worse every week. Interesting. And I live downtown, and I hear it all the time, and it just is very frightening. Yeah. Thank, thank you for that, Ellen. You know, Angie Schmidt, I was curious um, from your perspective, if we know, do most uh, pedestrian fatalities occur sort of in the normal course of business, or do we also have specific situations in which people are extremely you know, likely to be injured that... that lead to to big changes in the numbers, like, for example, this kind of drag racing or other types of, you know, kind of coordinated uh, car activity? Um, So more, you know, I do I do hear about these cases a lot um, where there is and there's some uh, a lot of anecdotal evidence that it's gotten worse in the past year, a lot of reckless driving. And I do think the caller's comment about toxic masculinity is really um, is really right. I think like a, a special me, young men are tend to be the most dangerous drivers are killed at very high rates and they're fed a lot of messages that are very harmful from pop culture, from movies that sort of glorify dangerous driving and uh, people really uh, innocent people really pay a high price for that. So I don't know if there is an easy solution, but we have to do a better job with the messages towards those folks. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I um, want to bring in uh, one last call, also from Santa Rosa. Henry, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. I just wanted to ask how much of our public space has been turned over to automo- automobiles? Yeah, it's a that, it's a really good question. Uh, Offer Grembeck, do you know, I mean, I think this is something that comes up a lot. You know, I'm a frequent cyclist, and it comes up a lot in the biking community. Obviously, pedestrians have uh, a lot of the same issues. And the basic question is, why do cars get so much of the space in our cities? So that's a, uh, that's a, a historical reason that involves kind of more um, designing for vehicles, uh, because at the time, it seemed like uh, um, or the focus of... Uh, oh, and maybe, maybe I'll back up a little bit. Uh, so the primary goal of the transportation system is to provide mobility. And as we're evolving, as we're going through the decades, we're recognizing more and more challenges that we need to account for and consider them um, uh, maybe constraints to the system. When the system was developed, many of these constraints were not top of mind. Uh, and that of course includes uh, sustainability and safety and equity and as we're uh, as we're growing as a community, 
we have to make sure it's more aligned with our moral values. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, the short answer is that uh, this was designed with a slightly different set of constraints. And now we're realizing that we need to modify that. Yeah. So it's more of a historical challenge uh, that is hard to change. Well, Afar, as I understand it, you know, California sort of has middling performance in terms of pedestrian safety. Is there a state or a country that's particularly good at keeping pedestrians safe? Absolutely. Uh, many of the Scandinavian countries have uh, dedicated a lot of efforts and resources to rebuild both their urban and their rural environment using Vision Zero principles. Uh, they've been doing it for almost three decades, and the results are definitely showing and what about somewhere uh, here in the United States? Um, uh, New York City has done a lot of uh, a lot of changes. Uh, uh, a few decades ago, a lot of this, a lot more space, uh, public space, was allocated for cars, and now they've been able to uh, reclaim some of that space for the uh, large amount of uh, pedestrian uh, movements in the city. So, uh, so that that's one example. And in San Francisco and many other uh, cities in California, they are slowly trying to move in that direction. And the topic of transit is closely related to that because uh, we know it's a more sustainable mode. We know that it's a safer mode when you're on the bus, but sometimes it's easy to forget that the access to transit is a commonly overlooked part. So uh, uh, transit is talked about as safe, but if you don't have safe access to the actual station, and that is something that is more common in communities of concern, then it's no longer a safe mode when you're talking about your door-to-door -door experience. Yeah. Angie Schmidt, if you had a, a magic wand and you could just make one change to the transportation system to make pedestrians safer, what would you do? You know what? I don't think there there is a really simple answer like that. I think that the point that was made earlier about how local residents in neighborhoods um, know what's best. I think what we need is a lot of small details done right. So, and that it needs to really be um, guided by hyper local sort of voices. Okay. But we complete sidewalks would be, I guess, that would be good. I, yeah. <laughs> complete sidewalks would be a good start. Um, and we just passed a speeding bill here um, just in our last minute. I wanted to get your uh, take, Angie. Do, have those bills been effective in other places? Do we know? Um, so I'm not familiar with the bill exactly, but um, I know there's a number of cities like Boston and Portland that have lowered their default speed limit in recent years. And we know that, that there's a lot of data that supports that it does reduce actual hmm. speed. Yeah. So um, that does seem to be effective. Yeah. We've been talking about traffic safety for pedestrians with Angie Schmidt, a journalist and author of Right of Way, Race Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America, as well as Offer Grembeck, who's co-director at UC Berkeley's Safe Transportation Research and Education Center. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We spoke earlier with Gina LeBlanc. Thank you for that. Uh, stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with host Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.